At what point did you know that you were sort of living through and covering something that was pretty profound and not just another story? Yeah, it's weird because I, as, as I described briefly in the book, I moved to Brooklyn um, coming out of college in part because I wanted to get out of Manhattan and the relentless gentrification that was going on there. I grew up in the Upper West Side and was in college and was, was uh, trying to decide what to do afterwards and sort of wanted to come back to New York and sort of didn't want to come back to New York because of what was going on in the 80s um, and wound up settling on, on Brooklyn. Um, and, you know, moved to Park Slope, um, thinking, oh, you know, this is kind of, has a little bit of the feel of the, of the Upper West Side that I grew up with in the 70s, you know, it was fairly diverse, not integrated, certainly, because, you know, closer to Prospect Park, you had, um, the more wealthy people, and closer to the north end of the slope, and then as you went south and down the slope, you you know had lots of uh, uh, you know Latinos and had uh, a few sort of leftover probably Irish who were there from some, you know the previous Park Slope generation, um, and then found that you know I was trying to run away from something that was not confined to Manhattan. I, I should go back and say when I moved to Park Slope, I moved to an apartment that had been renovated on Fifth Avenue for um, in anticipation of the 80s stock market boom arriving there. So they thought all these, you know, all these stockbrokers were gonna to move to Park Slope and then the crash came. And so there was this lull in the end of the 80s and early 90s, um, which then started picking up again. Um, and again, I thought it was, this is a Park Slope phenomenon, you know, oh. Um, and it really wasn't until, I guess after that dot-com crash and 9-11, things tailed off and then picked back up again. It's like, oh, this wasn't the transitory thing that just happened to happen because, you know, there was, uh, you know, this is something that's going, that's going on borough-wide and city-wide. Um, and that was around when I started writing about this. You know, I had done a lot of writing around poverty issues and welfare issues and city policy around that but hadn't really looked quite so much at development. And starting with, really when the Brooklyn Cyclones arrived, you know, since I had written about stadiums, I was like, wow, there's a stadium battle going on right in my own neighborhood, you know, because the, the parade grounds, um, when they were talking about building a temporary stadium for the Cyclones until they moved to Coney Island. And that really set off a whole lot of things. You know, that's when I first started researching uh, Acorn and Bertha Lewis, who wound up becoming a huge player in the Atlantic Yards battles that came later. Um, of course, Marty Mark was trying to get the Nets to move to the Brooklyn. Was in some ways, you know, the Cyclones were were a, uh, you know, he got a taste of that and was like, oh, we can get more. Um, and one of the things I discovered in, in writing the book, um, you know, pulling together all of the research and writing I had done previously. Um, and then doing additional research, additional interviews, was the degree to which um, the Cyclones coming really kicked off a lot of development in Coney Island. You know, there was right. very much idea of, in city government circles, of, oh, we've got this fancy new stadium here, we need to spruce up the rest of the neighborhood so that it looks good too. What does that episode tell us about the role, the, the interplay between market forces right. and the official planning process. I think you can't separate them, and I think to some degree the developers don't separate them, right? They don't think, oh, here's a, you know, th there's a new interest in Brooklyn, 
um, let's or new interest in, in you know looking at Brighton Beach. You know maybe that'll expand into Coney Island. There's a, there's demand there. We have to figure out a way of taking advantage of it. Hey, let's see if the city can help us out. Right? They think, oh look, the city is expressing interest there. This is something that we can sell as a hot new neighborhood. Right? Um, and it's it really is a it's not so much the market as the marketing. Right? That it's here's something that we can brand, something that we can market, and something that we can get the city to help us do. Um, so everything kind of wound up dovetailing, right? You had the city that had some things that it was interested in that you know a lot of people might agree on, right? They had this idea of well, we want to create jobs for the you know people in the who live in the West End, which is you know always been you know had huge levels of unemployment. Um, you know it's extremely isolated because they stuck a whole lot of public housing way far away from the train, sort of on the end of the peninsula. Um, and Coney Island, its main economy is seasonal. So you don't get a lot of you know, year-round jobs. So that was, a, again, you know, like with de Blasio's housing push, there's a core of, we're trying to do something good. But at the same time, you had this idea of, well, we need to revitalize the area. And revitalization is one of those buzzwords that is so fraught, right? And can mean anything from creating more job opportunities to creating new buildings to bringing in different types of people to live and work there, right? So um, I think that you wound up seeing this weird interplay between the city's goals, right, and the developer's goals, predominantly Joe Sittenthor Equities, but you know the ones who uh, who wound up buying up a lot of the the amusement park land and sort of holding it hostage, but not just them. You know, you had had other developers who were interested too, um, and you know it went through this long process where you had this sort of three-sided battle going on, right, between the city and the developers and the amusement park folks with the residents sort of looking on from the side and not really being all that involved. And I think the lesson that I take from that, and I sort of take from a lot of what I discovered in the book, is that it's not so much about what the city wants or what each part is. It's who, who winds up having a seat at the table, you know? And ultimately, you know, however much they brought in amusement district folks and the resident, things like that, they were not the ones driving this process, right? This was fundamentally going to be a negotiation between the city and economic development corporation on one side and the developers on the other side and sitting down and saying, okay, what can we horse trade in order to come to some sort of agreement? And what do you think is missing from the public conversation about the interplay between or the racial dynamics of development and gentrification in the city? I think that obviously race is a huge factor, right? And people who say, oh, no, no, it's just market operating, you know, it has nothing to do with race. That's ridiculous in part just because so much of people's decision, so much of demand, right? So much of market demand is driven by race in the city to this day, right? Do you think and that's conscious? Yeah, people talk about that, like wanting to recreate Times Square or make this place look like 34th Street. Do you think that they know what they're saying? Conscious of the part of like the planners and developers or conscious of the part of the people who are who are actually moving and the, buying the, the developers of creating a product for, for consumers to buy. Um I think they don't think of it that way. 
I think that they think of it as, you know, there are just people who want to move here and the fact that the people who have the money to buy what we want to sell happen to be mostly white, well, you know, they, we shouldn't discriminate against them. I mean, I've had a lot of experience, you know, with all that I've written both for the book and previous to that watching comment boards around this. And the, the go-to defense is why, do you, why shouldn't white people be able to live in that neighborhood, right? They, their money's just as good as anyone else's. And framing it that way, right? Framing it as, well, anyone should be able to move to a neighborhood, you know, anyone should be able to move to a neighborhood um, and sort of use their spending power, right? To, to buy something or to or rent something. Um, loses two things, right? It loses that whole sense of why are people moving there, right? And what is kind of the concept that is being sold to them, right? This whole sort of pioneer ethos of, um, and I want to circle back to that, but you know, of, of you know, what you're, what, what people are doing when they're moving to a neighborhood that is new to them, right? And new to perceive people like them. Um, and, then the um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. So let's let's stick with that for a minute. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that's really fascinated me was you know there's the, the chapter called called Gap mm -hmm. where I try to look at all of these big picture issues. Right, it looks at a lot of different neighborhoods, but it's really trying to look at the what this entire process is of gentrification really and sort of the reinvention of. Brooklyn. Right, and how it ties into broader trends in inequality right. in our country. In our and how, right, absolutely. So first of all, obviously you have to have people with money, right? I mean, you can't have $4,000 a month rents if you don't have people who can afford to pay $4,000 a month, right? So the fact that you've got um, this concentration of wealth in this country and in this city um, means you have more people with money, you have more people with money they can then spend on their kids, right? Um, in my neighborhood, in Kensington, you know, we're seeing more people paying cash or paying larger amounts of cash or coming in with, you know, money from equity funds that, you know, they're 28 years old and clearly they didn't, you know, haven't had that much time to invest their money, right? But the, there's there's a lot, there seems to be a lot more family money going on. Um, we call them trustafarians. It's, it's a trustafarian thing, absolutely. Um, but even, you know, people who are not, people who are just, you know, working you know, in whatever industry, right? But, you know, working sort of middle-class jobs, or middle-class jobs, but the way that they can afford to buy something as opposed to, you know, renting is because they have somebody, you know, f family with, again, not a ton of money, but enough money that they have some left over to give to them for, you know, more than a down payment. Um, so, um, so there's that piece, but what really has fascinated me is looking at the long arc of race and, um, migration in this city, right? So you had what everyone calls white flight in the 60s and 70s, and really the 60s and 70s. I think, I think the 50s, it was starting to go on, but it really didn't kick off until probably the mid-60s, which was driven by this whole confluence of factors, right? You've got redlining so that people were afraid that if they lived in a neighborhood with more than 5% non-white people that they weren't going to be able to get bank loans, right? Um, which is huge, was hugely important, but it wasn't just that, you know, people weren't just worried about their investments, you know, they were worried about integration, they were worried about um, what it would mean for their schools and their churches and 
um, you know, what it would mean for safety and crime. There was a lot of conflation going on of, oh, crime is up, it must be because, you know, there are more non-white people around. Um, and, you know, I was just reading recently that whole uh, moment in the run-up during the fiscal crisis, right, in the run-up to the to blackout where the NYPD was going around and handing out these fear city um, pamphlets, right, saying, you know, oh, New York isn't safe, tourists shouldn't come here as a way of trying to keep the city from, uh, from cutting uh, police. And that's like been, continues to be like one of the overriding dynamics for, I would say, largely for white people in New York City, right, is the idea of we don't want to let the city fall apart, right? Whether it was in the 70s when it really felt like it was falling apart or, you know, in 2016 when there's, you know, <laughs> it falling apart isn't even on the table, right? Because, you know, it's it seems like you just at the blink and, you know, you're going to get, you know, new investment, new, um, and crime is going to fall no matter what you do, right? I mean, not just here, but at all over the cities. So you have this weird thing where, where race was driving, was driving white people to move out. And then since then, again, what I was saying in terms of this sort of pioneer effect, there's been this paradigm and this concept since late 70s, early 80s, where, um, again, I don't want to say entirely white people, but both, both white people and I think more middle class, upper middle class people moving to the cities um, or to parts of the city that they didn't, you know, that they hadn't lived in in the, in the 60s and 70s, had this idea of themselves as somehow um, being the forces of revitalization, right? There's this idea that we're going to go in here and we're going to help turn this neighborhood around, which is true, right? right? I mean, it, you do go in there and you do help change it. Um, and not all the changes are bad, right? You know, I mean, you go in there and you open up a, whatever, a cafe or an art gallery. And it's not like people in Bushwick, you know, who lived in Bushwick in the 70s have, don't like cafes, right? Um, but the it winds up becoming not just, it must be becoming a selling point, you know, and it winds up becoming this idea of where they're not to join a community, right? And not to do something for the people who live here, but to do something for the neighborhood, which is a very different thing. In, in, the, in the discussion of inequality, I'm curious if you think that the rezonings and the development and residential patterns and how they changed, do those merely reflect uh, growing inequality, or do they exacerbate it somehow? Because one of the questions people have raised about de Blasio and his anti-inequality mission is, well, so what? what are you gonna, how can you affect something that is being shaped by the tax code, by globalization, by returns to education all around the world? Right. Are there ways that the rezoning decisions and the development that followed not only just sort of reflected the vast gap, but actually made it bigger? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously there are neighborhoods that have not been rezoned that have had seen huge changes, right? I mean, that's, that's, if the city had done absolutely nothing, it still would have changed, right? Um, I don't know if it would have changed the same because, um, you know, would anybody be living in downtown Brooklyn? Well, I mean, people would be living in downtown Brooklyn, but any of the people who are now moving to downtown Brooklyn, right, be living there if you hadn't put up a whole bunch of 30-story glass towers, 
Probably not, because in part that was a, you know, that was as much a marketing effort to say to people, hey, new neighborhood, you know, come move here. Um, and those people might be living in Manhattan or New Jersey or who knows where if, they, if that hadn't happened. Um, but I think more important is even if all it does is speed the rate of change, which it clearly does, right? You know, you rezone and um, suddenly a landlord doesn't have to evict all the tenants and, you know, slowly re renovate and turn their, their building over. They can just say, oh, hey, sorry guys, we're turning the building down because we're building one that's four times the size. Um, and this, the rate of change is, I think, what makes gentrification, what makes displacement such a threat. You know, uh, the history of New York, people have moved all over the place. You know, if you look at, uh, you know, how Harlem became Harlem, that community of African Americans moved about six different times, slowly up the, <laughs> up the island, you know, as it was, as, you know, you had 19th century gentrification where people, you know, who had more money were like, oh, hey, nice neighborhood you got here, guys. <laughs> um, but it's easier to respond to that and move institutions and stores and religious institutions and all those things and communities when you see it coming in when you have, you know, 20, 30 years to slowly adapt and slowly migrate. When it's that snap of the fingers, you know, hey, rezoning every start, you know, putting steel in the ground tomorrow, um, it becomes very hard to adapt to that. And that's when you see, you know, landlords starting to push people out much more quickly when you see, um, you know, existing communities sort of get scattered to the winds because there's no planning or you, you can't plan around that. You can't just, you know, figure out how to slowly move. You know, it's a little like climate change, you know? Um, if you can slowly, if, if you're a species that can slowly adapt to it by moving north, you know, a mile every year, that's fine. If you suddenly have this catastrophic change where suddenly one year the sea ice disappears and you're a polar bear, <laughs> you know, you starve to death. One of the things that's mentioned in the book, I think Brad Landers, the quote actually, but you hear it all the time, is unintended consequences. Yeah. And maybe that's a fair defense because the kind of widespread rezoning Bloomberg did were, were pretty new to the city. Um, but, you know, now we have those in the rearview mirror and in your book. Um, one of the great quotes at the end of the Coney Island chapter is mm -hmm. just, you know, it could have been done a better way. Right. So what do you think are the lessons that come out of this for de Blasio? Because to some degree, the book raises the question, I think, um, even when well-intentioned, the planning is going to have um, this problem sort of running into reality, to changes in the economy, to cycles, to booms, to busts. Um, given all of that, what are the, the lessons that you might extract? Is there any sign that de Blasio has learned them? I mean, I think the big lesson of, you know, the, not just the book, but of the last 40 years of, of, you know, Brooklyn and New York City is, um, you know, be careful what you do because you can't undo it, um, you know, and more specifically, I think there's a lot of assumption that goes on in the Blasio administration and the city that, that it's a matter of trying to address supply and demand. Right, that there's too much demand in the city and not enough supply, and what we need to do is figure out a way of increasing the supply of housing um, in a way that it will, it will make it accessible to that demand. And I think one thing that's incredibly clear now, I mean, it should have been clear really before the Bloomberg era of rezonings, but certainly after we've done that, is that demand is not an independent variable. You know, demand is not something that you just say, okay, well, there's this demand out there, we have to figure out how to face it. Demand is something that is socially constructed, right? It's constructed in part by 
you know, the concentration of wealth and post-Reagan tax policy and all that, but it's also constructed by the pioneer mentality and by um, the New York Times real estate section declaring neighborhoods to be, you know, hot. And, you know, you, know, you were asking at the beginning whether it was a matter of intentional racism, you know, and I think it's... When you have you know, a city that is so governed, you know, where, the, where, the, where people's sense of what's a desirable neighborhood, of what's a desirable school, of what's a safe neighborhood is so formed by race and class, right? And when you have a city that is so dramatically unequal in terms of wealth and in terms of people's ability to buy property, rent property, affect the political process, right? This is how it's going to play out, right? So it doesn't. It's not that there's somebody sitting there and, and, and planning all this. Everyone thinks, oh, I'm just you know playing my my part, um, and I'm just you know trying to affect these bigger forces that are going on around me. But again, like with structural racism, the bigger for you're a part of the bigger forces. You know, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's you and it's you know the city and the developers and the Times Real Estate section and everybody you know acting together and the people and you know and the. The people who are going in and buying condos, and even the people like me, or you know, journalists and artists and people like that, who are going and uh, and uh, and you know, just looking, you know, think, hey, we're just looking for a place to live. You're affecting it too, you know. What do you think is significant about Atlantic Yards, the process behind it? What what? Why do we focus so much on it? So, it's interesting. You know, I've written a lot about stadiums and. One of the things I always uh, try to counter is this idea that, oh, they're going to revitalize your city. You know, it's going to create a huge difference. And indeed, um, you know, it's not like Atlantic Yards or the, or the Barclays Center has changed Brooklyn by itself or changed New York City by itself, right? I mean, the people who are going to Nets games and concerts there probably would have gone to you know, Knicks games or concerts in Madison Square Garden or would have gone to, some, you know, the, the, the money would have spent somewhere here. It, it isn't a huge, you know, it's a drop in the bucket in terms of the city economy. But one thing that I realized not to dismiss is big developments, again, whether it's sports venues or, you know, any kind of, you know, major construction can radically change a neighborhood, you know. And one thing that that has done is, is radically change that neighborhood, you know. Um, Prospect Heights was already gentrifying like crazy before then. Um, and most of Vanderbilt, you know, probably would look about the same as it does now, um, with, with or without Atlantic Yards. But, you know, the area right around there, um, you know, near the corner of Flatbush Atlantic, you know, has changed dramatically in terms of commercial rents, in terms of the kinds of stores that are going there, you know, and it's been rebranded, you know. It used to be sort of this downscale place with a sort of crappy mall that Bruce Ratner built, and now it's a destination. Um, and I think what you saw in the process was, again, similar to Coney Island, you sort of had this hierarchy of, you know, who got what kind of say. I want to sort of circle back to the idea of what could be done differently, because I think, you know, there are plenty of people in the planning world, probably not in the Department of City Planning, because I don't think they could live with themselves very long and <laughs> their jobs if they were, you know, if that's what they were doing. But there are plenty of people in the planning world who say this is ridiculous. You know, this is no way to there's no way to run a railroad. You know, and you have to have some sort of system that approaches planning not just as well. Let's follow around the developers and see what they want to do and figure out a way of turning it to the benefit of the greater good. Um, 
And it's hard, you know, you're probably going to need to do a lot of things simultaneously. You're going to need to have a lot more actual public construction of housing, right? Because developers are not going to build a lot of affordable housing, um, you know, based on the profit motive because there's no profit in it, right? You know, you can hold out a carrot of, well, we'll let you ruin this neighbor, this block, if you do something nice on this block. Um, but you're going to need to, to have, have you know, the city be a lot more aggressive um, and a lot more activist in terms of, in terms of you know, building you know, everything from housing to schools to you know, amenities that will not be paid back by people coming in and spending lots of money for them because you're trying to do them for the people who don't have lots of money. Um, and you're going to need to, to, I mean, I don't think you can do it without affecting inequality, and that's hard, you know? Um, if the city and the state were to radically ramp up taxes on the rich and dramatically increase the minimum wage, I and mean, we're going to see what's going to happen, right, when the minimum wage goes to 15 an hour, um, but I don't think that's going to be enough to, you know, dramatically change the dynamic of, you know, people who earn... $200,000 a year can still outspend people who earn $15 an hour, right? Um, but if you really start changing that, right, could you change the dynamic and get to the point where maybe a neighborhood like East New York wouldn't have to be afraid of what happens when, you know, the rich folks come because they would say, well, you know, we can afford, you know, maybe our rents might go up, but hey, we're earning a decent wage now, we can afford it. If we have to, it wouldn't be our ideal. Um, and I think you have to address you know, race in the city, and you have to address how people, you really have to address how white people approach living in a neighborhood, you know? <laughs> I want to get down to it. Um, you have to, you know, address the way that people try to remake neighborhoods, the way that people relate to their neighbors, and these discussions are starting to go on, but you know, there's it's there's a really, really long ways to go. And I don't think any one of these pieces is going to be enough to really change the, you know, what's going on in the city right now, what's going on in Brooklyn right now. Um, but if you did all of them at once, it might start shifting things.